Hey, are you with me? I'm with you. All right, then. Welcome to the inaugural episode of a brand new podcast, the Book Exchange Podcast. And we are very glad that you're listening. If you're out there hearing this, this is our first time doing this. So uh, we would appreciate right out of the gate your patience, but um, very excited to be getting this started. It is April of 2020. It's a strange time in the world because of the coronavirus. And most of us are, we're recording in the United States, and but most people everywhere are kind of stuck in their homes. So kind of figure what better time to, to launch a podcast, right? Right. Definitely. So let me explain just a little bit about what's unique about this podcast. This podcast is about really one subject only, and that is books and reading and discussing, and even in some cases, writing books. Uh, my name is John Lovell, and I am joined by my twin brother, Jude Lovell. Go ahead and say hi, Jude. Hi, John. It's great to be on this uh, new podcast. We've been looking forward to it for a long time. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, to kind of set it up, you know, what's a little bit different about this podcast is that we are twin brothers um, discussing books. And and that's something we've been doing literally for, well, we're on the cusp of 50 here, you and I, but uh, I'm going to say at least 45 years we've been reading books, discussing them together. So that's a really long time. It's a for, literally a 45-year conversation that's been going right. on, and we've decided to make it, uh, to share it, to make it a little bit public. Uh, hopefully, people will who are interested in books and reading or uh, anything literary uh, may want to tune in and listen to and you know take part in the conversation in some way. So that's really all this podcast is going to be about, but in the, in the vast multiverse of of all things literary, you know, you get, you get two Vir Virgils for the price of one here. Uh, my twin brother and I are going to be your guides through that vast multiverse. And there's, there's literally, there's not much we're not going to cover. I think uh, we have pretty broad ambitions for this podcast. Uh, uh, both Jude and I read very broadly. So we'll talk about fiction, nonfiction, short stories, uh poetry maybe i mean who knows uh there, there, it's such a vast multiverse as i said that there's really uh we both uh, i think i can say we we both uh in terms of why we read at all we both uh make it a goal of ours to read broadly and uh, just just enjoy just learning new things and you know hearing new voices and and that's a lot of the impetus for for why we both read i think and that's certainly the impetus for this podcast is there anything you want to say jude about the the reason for this podcast to exist? Well, I wouldn't want to add too much to it because of the uh, the aptness and the beauty of your description there, John. Nice job there. I would just say we're, we're hoping that anybody who chooses to listen to us gets some ideas perhaps for their reading. And we're trying to take advantage of our like twinly mojo, <laughs> our twinliness to keep, to have a kind of a, yeah an interesting, perhaps a little unique flow to our discussions. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's exactly it. We're gonna we're certainly doing this because it's 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 uh, this is a labor of love for us and almost kind of an obsession that has been going on for a long time. But we both know that people who read or are into literature at all, it it, it kind of gets that way. You know, once you kind of get a taste for it, uh, you do sort of get obsessed with it a little bit, and and you can't can't imagine your life without it. So that's certainly how we feel. And just to 
briefly say a little bit about who we are and maybe you know why we're qualified to do this um which uh there's a gk chesterton quote i'm struggling to remember right now uh it has something to do with uh you know, being what is the nature of an amateur? An amateur is somebody who is willing to do something badly. I, I'm butchering that quote, but um, the word amateur comes from love. So, you know, uh, uh, this podcast is about the love of books and, you know, we're willing to sort of do it badly because it's worth it kind of thing. Um, and, and that's yeah. true in my case. I, I really, were you going to say something? No, I'm just agreeing. I like that. Okay. Um, so like I said, my name is John Lovell. I'm recording from the Eastern shore of Maryland on the Eastern side of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, I'm a husband, father of four children and, uh, my work, I do a lot of writing for my work. So there is a little bit of a writing element for me. Um, but really I'm just kind of a long lifelong bibliophile. Uh, Jude, of course, as you know, we come from, from, uh, parents who were both heavily into reading and books and lifelong learners. And I think we you know, for better or for worse, we acquired a lot of that. So uh, that's really all there is in terms of qualification for me, just uh, something I'm heavily into and uh, I, I really enjoy discussing. I don't think necessarily I have anything to teach anybody. I'm just uh, eager to have the conversation. And that's kind of how I approach it. But how about you? Well, um, again, I like the way you put that. We certainly come from that kind of um, bookish heritage. So my name is Jude Joseph Lovell, just to repeat, and I'm coming at you from the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, which is like the Bethlehem and Allentown area, former steel country here. And I am a, an insurance professional, I guess you might say by day, I work for an insurance company. And I also write a little bit on the side for a magazine called Silver Sage. They're at silversagemag.com if you'd like to take a look. And furthermore, I'm an independent author, meaning I publish my own books. I've written 11 books of fiction and nonfiction, and I, I am not here to peddle them necessarily, but I would say that my perspective, and you're going to see some of that today, my perspective on the books I'm drawn to relates very much to my, to my own writing life and endeavors. So that's me. Yeah, I was going to say, we're going to get into, you know, uh, kind of why we do this and why we want to do this a little bit more with the topic for for our inaugural show here, which we're going to get to in just a second. Um, but first, I just want to, this is what we were thinking in terms of the format for this show. And obviously we reserve the right to, to deviate from it if we, if we would like to, or sometimes depending on, on what the topic we choose is. But in general, I think we've decided that what we're going to do in terms of the format for the show is we're going to start off by just dis talking briefly about what we're reading now. And I think that's just... You know, that's something that Jude and I do all the time anyway, but it's, an, but it's you know, kind of a way to, you know, keep current. And uh, that doesn't mean our reading is always going to be, you know, current reading, but uh, just kind of, you know, track along with what we're reading and maybe recommend titles or, or whatever. Uh, that just seems like a good way to kind of kick into the discussion. And then we'll have a, what I would call the meat of the show. And we really, we decided we're going to kind of approach this. There, there may be three different sort of types of show that we might do and the first would be we would discuss a particular book maybe it's a book you know likely it's a book we've both read and feel like uh it's worth it to dive into it more and you know there's uh plenty to discuss and we'll kind of get into that so that's that could be one type of show another type would be to examine the work of a particular author 
that is someone either either a favorite of both of ours or just someone interesting enough uh, that we may want to explore. Um, and then we would choose some some books uh, to discuss from that author, depending on what we've read. So that's another type. And then there would be like themed types of shows. So uh, books about X or, uh, you know, maybe it would be, uh, you know, great American detective novels, or maybe it would be uh, fantasy epics like uh, Jude. I know you just wrote an article for Silver Sage magazine uh, that as you just brought up, um, you wrote an article on George R.R. R. Martin and his uh, the saga. What's the name of the saga again? It's amazing. I don't know that, but. Uh, Song of Ice and Fire is the proper name. Yeah, that's that's why I don't know because people mix it up with uh, Game of Thrones, which is the name of the TV show. But as you taught me, not the name of the actual saga that he's writing. But anyway, you get the idea. We may have a, a theme type of show, and that could literally go anywhere. And that's kind of what's exciting about this for us because, I mean, this is a, sort of like an armchair traveler kind of situation. We may not be able to go everywhere around the world, but we can certainly read about it. And um, that's something that we both love to do. So that anything you want to add to that? Too? I mean, that's kind of the form. Oh, and then at the end, we were we were going to briefly, we'll probably briefly talk about what's coming up next in our reading, just to kind of tease whatever you know we may be diving into next. Not necessarily, not necessarily for the show, but uh, just just to keep the conversation going about where we're going to be going with our own reading. Anything you wanted to add? Uh, no, I, I mean, not much. I would say I agree with your, the way you lay the, the show format out. And I would say what you already said, um, that at times we may deviate from it, you know, like perhaps a, a major literary figure dies and we just drop, drop mm -hmm. anything else and talk only about that figure or something to that effect. But, but by and large, it's a good description of what you and I have talked about and, and, uh, I'm excited to dive into it. Yeah, and even and, and even today's show, which we'll segue into starting now, even today's show is a little bit of a departure from what I just described. But uh, what I thought we what we both thought we would do, we've been talking about this for a while in order to kind of kick this podcast off uh, and also as a way for listeners to kind of get to know a little bit more about us and how we tick and maybe how we think what we're what we're into as your hosts. We're going to take the first two episodes and we're going to um, talk about the books that made us. That's what we're sort of calling it, you know, and, and by that we mean, uh, you know, get get a little bit personal with with our, our some of our favorite books that we've read in our lifetime. And we're going to take it across two episodes. So the, this first episode today is going to be in the fiction category. And then the next episode is going to be nonfiction books. So we're both going to choose three books that were formative for us in some way. Now that's that's a pretty broad way to say it because it could be formative in terms of just expanding our ideas of what, you know, great reading or great literature can be. It could be formative somehow on who we are as people and on our way of looking at the world or in Jude's case probably more than mine, it could be formative in terms of uh, of how he became a writer or influencing his style of writing. It could be any any of those things. And it's really hard to narrow it down to just three books if you've been reading for 45 years, or I'm sure many of you have been reading across multiple decades. I mean, how do you just, how do you choose three books that quote unquote make, made you who you are? Well, that's obviously impossible. Well, we're just gonna focus on three, three a piece. Uh, again, in this, for this particular episode, it's gonna be uh, 
fiction and just pick out three books that we want to kind of discuss in a little more detail and basically talk about why they're why they're so important to us and how they help to form us in some way you know as readers and probably as people as well so that's the topic for today uh, again, I don't mean to be repetitive, but I, I want to make sure that, that you add whatever you want to add, Jude. So um, what else would you like to say on the topic before we dive in? Uh, I think, uh, again, I think you set it up well. You know, I, I, I think it's, uh, I just would agree with you that it's very hard to narrow these things down. But at least in my own chase, case, I chose three that were representative of books that were really kind of game changers for me or in one way or another. And I'll do the same thing with the nonfiction. So we'll get into why that is. But uh, no, good job with the setup. Awesome. Awesome. And just uh, before we dive in, a little bit of an administrative note. I don't know if this is true or not, but obviously we are twin brothers hosting this show. So we have everything about us is similar across the board, pretty much. Uh, If you saw us, you'd probably be kind of amazed at how alike we look. And... um, uh, right down to our voices. So I don't know if people are going to have trouble distinguishing one voice from another. We'll try to mention our names as we kick it back and forth at times, because again, this is sort of a unique angle for this particular show. But I've been told my voice is just a touch lower than Jude's is. So this is John talking right now. And Jude, you want to give a little sample of your voice again? Yeah. Uh, me, 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 me. <laughs> no, I, I, I've been... I have been told that my voice is, is higher. I think that's general. I think that's true. And I also think, John, that um, the way that the that the show will come over, it sounds uh, from some of our early experimenting like, you know, one person is kind of hosting and another person sort of joins on an exterior line. And at least for today, this is me, Jude, and I'm joining from, from uh, you know, from another location from John's hosting. So hopefully that'll help us out there, too. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, this is a work in progress, folks. Obviously, uh, and I should have said, we've, uh, Jude said this once when we were talking about this, you know, we've been reading for 45 years, but we've been podcasting for zero. (laughs) So this is literally like the first podcast we've ever tried to do. It's obviously going to be rough around the edges. We still need to figure out, we've got an idea for theme music, but we haven't figured out how to put it in there yet. So this episode probably won't have that. I think we'll get better as we go along, but uh, there's yeah, nowhere to go but up. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, so often you just got to dive in to a project and, you know, you could, you could hem and haw and talk about it until the cows come home, but you might as well just dive in with both feet and work it out as you go along, make it up as you go along. So with all that said, why don't we dive into it? And I'm actually going to, so we're talking about, again, three books that made us three fiction books in this episode that made us and that were, you know, influential in some way. I'm going to kick it over to you to start things off, Jude. Do we want to touch quickly on what, what we're reading right now? Oh, I forget. <laughs> see, work in progress, folks. Yeah, I forgot that. Why don't we do that? Uh, skipped right over the segment I already talked about. So, but again, why don't you kick things off? Okay. Yeah, no problem. We're, we're, we're learning as we go. Um, and we'll handle this quickly. So I just, because um, I want to hear what you have to say, actually. So that's why I steered it back in that direction. Uh, anyway, we talk about this all the time. So we generally know what each other are reading. But right now I'm in, I sort of, you know, with these weird times that are on us, I decided that, you know, this whole lockdown and coronavirus, which is serious, 
um, gives us a lot of spare time in a way and it gives us you know the freedom to try new things or like you know try to be creative so I decided that with my reading I would try to branch out a little bit and take on really big books so I'm going through a, um, a number of big books that were on my shelf and I try to, to, to diversify it from like kind of big books that are heavier material and big books that are lighter and this one that I'm reading now, I just really couldn't resist. Um, it's called The Stand. It's kind of a famous novel. It's by Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And it happens to a, a global pandemic. And um, it's just fun. I'm a big fan of Stephen King, as uh, as John knows. And it's just it's fun to read. And I, I did read this book, but I read it when I was probably about 19 or 20. And a lot of water has flown under the bridge since then. So it's interesting to revisit. But I'm sort of... Uh, you know, maybe like a little over a third of the way through the stand, and I'm just enjoying my reread uh, and a, another dip into the pool of Stephen King. So, exactly. Over to you. Yeah. It, well, let me ask you exactly how long is that book? Uh, the version I so there's like a, a couple versions. So there was like an uncut version that was like 1,100 pages. I think that's the one I originally read that came out many years ago. But this uh, but this book came out in the late 70s, I believe. Or at least he was writing it in the late 70s. Might have been the early 80s when it was published. And my version is a old school, you know, founded at a used paperback sale. And it's about, uh, I think it's somewhere around 800 pages, give or take. Hmm. I didn't realize there's so much extra material in the uncut version. I mean, I, I've, I've always thought of The Stand as, and I've never read it. I started it once when I was a, a young man, but for some reason I didn't finish and I'm a fan of Stephen King too. Not probably not as much as you are, Jude. But uh, not not that I'm not a fan. But you you just read more. Um, but I don't know why I didn't finish it. But I I never made it through. So I've never actually read the whole thing. But I didn't realize that the uncut version was that much longer. And I also didn't realize that that was being written in the late '70s. For some reason, I thought it was not quite that old. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is interesting to consider the. You know, there are some lines from it that seem pretty prescient for the for the present moment. Does it does it not? We'll move on here. But does it describe? Do you know the reason for the uh, the worldwide plague in that in that book, or is that too much of a spoiler or something? No, it's like you know, ascribed to sort of a secret project from the government that kind of got out of hand. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is kind of classic pulpy Stephen King kind of thing. Um, so it's like something they were doing behind closed doors and it kind of escaped, you know, which is the the big part of the opening of the book is that somebody's escaping from a government facility. Well, and that's how it. Sorry. That's no, OK. I was just going to say that's how it, the spreading kicks off. It reminds me of the, the, the great Korean monster movie, The Host. You know, it's always like something the government is doing. And then they just like, right. you know, somehow it escapes the building in some way. And then, you know, panic ensues, you know, all hell is let loose literally. So, well, that's, that's, that's a great choice. And I'm sure you're enjoying that uh, in some ways. It's sort of weird to be reading it in other ways, I imagine. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's fun, but it's strange too. Okay. So, so with, a, to try not to take up too much time, the book that I'm, I'm, I'm in the final pages of literally uh, the book I've been reading for the last couple of weeks is called the overstory by richard powers and i know you've heard of it anybody a lot of people who might listen to this may have heard of it uh i think it was, was it last year it won the pulitzer prize or was it the uh, recently uh, yeah it's hard to remember but yeah uh, yeah recently 
I think it was a Pulitzer Prize, not the Booker Prize. I, I could be wrong and get these prizes mixed up. But Richard Powers is an American novelist. I've actually never read him before. He's got many books and that have been highly acclaimed, I think it's safe to say. Uh, I'm not going to rattle off all of them now, but this is this book is about trees, essentially. And it is, uh, some people call it the Great American Echo Novel. It's a large book. It's about 500 and something pages. As I say, I'm just getting to the very end of it. And it's basically about a wide range of people, characters uh, that come to, that are linked, turns out to be linked in one way or another. They sort of come together and they all become in one way or another, basically activists uh, fighting for, to preserve uh, the, the environment in general and trees in particular. And it's, and it's, uh, it's very, it's really wide ranging. Um, it has a lot to do with uh, the ways trees impact the physical environment and also, you know, pun intended sort of intertwine with our lives and how you know, most people can look back on their life and pick out a unique tree or an interesting tree that they remember. So it really, it's a very ambitious, it explores the relationship between trees and, you know, humanity, trees and memory, trees and spirituality. And uh, it's kind of a virtuosic performance. He, 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 in the beginning, it's got an unusual structure. Uh, and in the beginning, he writes, there's a, a number of chapters that are all, the title is a person's name. And he writes a chapter about, I'd say about nine or 10 different characters. And he tells a whole story of their lives. In some cases, he goes back multiple generations. And that's the first, maybe Ooh. third of the book. And I thought, to me, that was the most impressive part of the book. Uh, he bring, he, he, it's almost like mini novellas where he tells a story of nine. I don't know if it's nine, but uh, we'll just say nine, you know, different, a handful of different people who come from very diverse backgrounds, different places all around the world. And he tells, I found each of those tales to be very compelling in and of itself. And I thought that was a really kind of a stunning achievement. And then the rest of the book, you know, kind of brings their lives together in different ways. Some of which are more successful than others, I would say. Um, I'm not going to get too much into my opinion of the book because this is a really interesting, sprawling, you know, acclaimed novel uh, that I know you have on your shelf, Jude, and I know you were interested in. So I think we had talked about maybe even devoting an episode in the future to this novel, The Overstory, because it's the kind of book that we could really get into an interesting discussion around. And so I think I'll leave it there. That's I'm, As I said, I'm just about to finish it. I was more impressed with the first half of the book than the second. Uh, I think the book, for me personally, has some problems, but I don't want to get too far into that right now. But I really admire, you know, the scope of it and the ambition of it. And uh, I also had never read Powers before. He's a fine writer, too. So I think there's a, there's a whole lot I know that you would admire in it, but it'd be really interesting to kind of dig into the particulars and hopefully we'll get a chance to do that. Yeah, with the title like that, the overstory, it's kind of it's almost you know suggests a podcast episode in itself. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd be I'd be very interested in doing that. The only other thing I would say before we move on is that it's interesting that he did that with the characters because that's one of the main techniques that is used by George Martin in that Song of Ice and Fire saga is that he names all of his chapters pretty famously, you know, by a person's name, and then there's like a whole mini saga per chapter throughout the entire lengthy series of novels that's an interesting technique for powers and for martin to use 
Yeah, I didn't know that. That's that's that is really interesting. It's certainly ambitious, and the the way Powers does it is he starts it, he sort of weaves two techniques. So it's the very first part of the book is a brief sort of prologue, and it's called Roots, and then you have a series of chapters named for different people that takes up a big long chunk of it, and then you have sections. One is called Crown. I'm sorry. One is called Trunk. One is called Crown, and the last one is Seeds. So. You know, have this uh, combined sort of structure with you know one obviously mimicking the parts of the tree, woven in with these different character stories. So it's it's really unusual, ambitious. You mentioned the title, fascinating title. I could get into why it's called that, but you know, again, we'll put that off. I think it's going to be worth discussing at some point. I think we could really have an interesting discussion around that book. But why don't we move? On? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we move on? Get into the meat of the show. Um, and I, I set it up before, so I don't think I need to do a lot right now to set it up. These are, are quote unquote, the books that made us. We're going to choose three fiction titles each, and uh, I'm going to kick it off to you to get it started. Okay, one logistical question, John. While we're live here, do you want me to go through my three, or are we going to alternate? I think we should alternate. I think just to keep the 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 conversation, you know, different. Okay. Very good. I'll dive right in. So for me, so these are, these are our fiction titles. And for me, it's very hard to just distinguish the whole subject of fiction away from my own sort of nascent literary ambitions. Let me, Hey, so really quick. I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Uh, Why don't we try to keep it to like, uh, you know, seven minutes a book if we can, just in the in interest of time, which is going to be hard. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if we spill over, we spill over. But we'll, uh, we'll I'm, I'm perfectly willing to follow that. Um, so for me, my choices have very much to do with sort of my development as a fiction and as a nonfiction writer. But I, and my reading in general tends to be inextricably intertwined with my writing life so and that's going to make things really interesting because that, that makes for a very different kind of list than for than john might choose um on in either of the topics fiction or non-fiction so i chose three books that were really game-changing to me in terms of my point of view on what fiction writing in particular can be and what it can do and what it can achieve and so the three titles I picked really kind of like not, kind of knocked me over in terms of that, like just sort of opened my mind to different ways of doing things. And I also put my list in the order of when I encountered them. Okay. So, and, and for me, all these books I've read multiple times. Um, but the first one for me is a novel. Uh, it's no stranger to you, John. It's called, it's called Winter's Tale. And it was written by a man named Mark Halpern, who's uh, a novelist and a short story writer who's been sort of a, uh, he's kind of in semi-retirement now, but he's been an active writer of fiction in the United States for decades. And the book was published in 1983. And it's a little bit hard to summarize exactly what it is, uh, except, you know, uh, I've read it three times. I'm very, very familiar with it. I don't remember exactly how it came into my sort of purview or, you know, how, how it first claimed my attention. 
Um, I just don't remember that. The first time I read it was when I was a young man, which is important, in the early 1990s. Uh, the book was published in 1983. Um, and it is basically a long kind of fantasy tale set in the New York City um, in what would have been contemporary times, at least at the beginning of the novel. So like like the early 80s. And I would sort of summarize it because it's a book that really sort of breaks a lot of rules and defies categorization in a, in a few different ways. But I would summarize it by saying it's obviously kind of a, a love letter to the city of New York. So it was written by somebody who was living there and knew the city very, very well. Um, and Helprin had written uh, one or two novels and some short story collections by that time. But this was sort of like his first really ambitious uh, book, um, both in terms of its length and its like form and style. And it concerns a character named Peter Lake, who is just kind of a wandering uh, thief. He's like kind of a vagabond uh, thief with kind of a mysterious veneer when the novel opens and like I said it, it opens in contemporary times and he's living in New York City and kind of moving around and, and robbing uh, the houses of the wealthy and uh, other places and he he ends up um, robbing the estate of or the, the manse of a very rich family and one night and while he's robbing the house he discovers there's a young woman in the house who's sick and on the verge of death uh was kind of lying there and sort of unprotected with nobody around her and he um his plan to you know rob the house gets kind of aborted and he meets this woman and she and he falls in love with her and kind of she kind of changes his life and it begins as kind of like a romance between this thief and this like sort of heiress, you know, uh, set in New York. And then there's, you know, all kinds of different plot mechanisms that we don't really have time to get into. But what's really critical is about one third of the way into the book, um, this guy, this thief, Peter Lake, ends up in a confrontation with this sort of street gang of these criminals who kind of have a history with him. They're called the Short Tails. They're like a, a, an actual gang with a name. And they um, end up chasing after him in order to confront him and, and do him in. You can tell that they want to kill him. And Peter Lake discovers this white horse wandering around New York City. And he rides off on this white horse. And there's a scene where he gets kind of cornered on the Brooklyn Bridge. And the horse jumps off the bridge, not to give too many plot points away, and begins to fly. And from there, Peter Lake sort of ascends into the clouds and he falls off the horse and falls out of the time that he's living in through the clouds and lands in like another era much earlier, like a century earlier. Wow. And then the story, the story re, sort of reignites from there. And I mentioned that plot point because I, was, I remember being completely blown out by that plot point and... I had this sense of wonder about the book before that even happened. But when that happened, in my first reading of the book, I, I sort of instinctively knew that, 
all bets were off and that this was a writer who had just kind of thrown the rule book out the window and he was gonna and he had me completely in his hands and i didn't care you know where the story went in history or time or anything from that point on you know with this character falling out of time and into another time uh, mark helper kind of had me and then the story kind of goes from there and takes all kinds of wondrous twists and turns and then ends up with this very ambitious finale that i'm not even sure i understand <laughs> yeah. three reads into it wow um so i would leave it there with like sort of the plot description but the reason why it's so important to me is because it like I, I i would just i really almost fell in love with would be the right way to say it with that style of storytelling i could feel the writer just kind of shrugging off any constraints to his own imagination you could feel his love for the city and it was kind of like bleeding through every page and i just thought wherever this guy's going i'm going to follow and for me that was such a revelation you know i had not written any novels yet i was just starting to try sh- to write short stories didn't really know how to write them and but the example of that book has stayed with me ever since mm. and when i reread it you know i the last time i reread it i went back and checked it was almost 10 years ago now but i've read it three times and when i reread it i kind of just it sort of rekindles all those um ambitious sort of fires within me and reminds me you can just do if you're a fiction writer there are no rules you can just do whatever the heck you want you know so that's my first lecture that's really that's awesome uh, i I've, i've read it once on your recommendation um because i remember when you did first read it and how enthusiastic you were about it so it's sitting here on my shelf i could probably do for a reread but uh it's just you can hear in your voice that it just really just kind of lit some kind of fire inside you about what fiction can do that's a that's a great one um and, uh, really it really did it really did yeah it just kind of you know it was so scales from the eyes kind of moment when I read yeah book. yeah that's a good way to describe it this is so tough because every one of these books that you bring up or i bring up we could talk for you know anybody who's really into books you know you could talk for a long time especially about one that's near and dear to you you could just you know go on forever about why it's so important but so it's going to be a challenge to keep it short um my first selection i didn't i didn't do it necessarily by chronology but this one just happens to be the first one happens to be probably the oldest for me in terms of you know how old i was when i first read it and uh how many times i've gone back to it and things like that and it's the screw tape letters by cs lewis um cs lewis of course is a is a world famous uh writer and also apologist for the christian faith uh british 20th century most people would recognize the name if from nothing else from the the classic uh narnia series of fantasy uh novels for for younger people which is how i was first introduced to him i think back in like third grade I think my my uh, lifelong reading affair with cs lewis goes back almost the extent of my entire life as you know um but i yeah. remember being a, you know, a primary school student you know grade school student reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and liking them well enough and you know as everybody does really kind of being sucked in by them but I'm trying to I don't know as a young man I don't I can't remember if I read Mere Christianity first or the Screw Tape Letters but I think it was the Screw Tape Letters um and the Screw Tape Letters 
will stay with me for my entire life. It, for me, it's an absolutely fundamental book. Uh, and not quite for the same reasons you described, since I'm not a, a fiction writer. It's, it's more about, I realized that the three books that I picked are more tied to just who I am as a person and kind of like, it, it, it didn't necessarily shape my worldview, but it certainly have had an influence on it, but more reflect what's really most interesting to me when you get down to the very core of who I am. And that is grappling with philosophical and spiritual questions. So that's just how, that's just how I'm wired. You know, we get that from both our dad and mom and, you know, I inherited a big chunk of that. And to me, at the end of the day, the most important art will, for me, will, will, you know, attempt to tackle fundamental questions and really grapple with them. And that could be music, movies, plays, poetry, anything. That's just, that's what lights me up the most. And the screw tape letters absolutely boggled my mind. Even as a young man, it's one of these books, like a lot of C.S. Lewis's books that I think you can come back to the older you get and get more out of because he was a very wise, deep thinker, very thoughtful, very intellectually shrewd. Uh, but what really knocks me, bowled me over the first time I read it and continues to about this, the screw tape letters is the insight into human nature that it reveals. How did C.S. Lewis come to, come to acquire such incredible insight on the way human beings work and how we think and how we tick and what we yearn for and things like that. That blew me away as an 18 or 19 year old. It still blows me away now on the, on the cusp of 50. I think it will when I'm on the cusp of 80, if I make it that long. Um, I've read the screw tape letters. I don't want to say three or four times, probably do for another read. I've shared it with my children who are old enough to read it. Um, and of course, uh, and if you're not familiar with it, uh, it's a short book. It's not a novel per se, but it's a fictional exercise. What it is, is a series of letters that are written from uh, the perspective of a, what, what he calls a senior devil in quotes named Screwtape. And he's writing to his young nephew named Wormwood. And he's basically giving him advice and instruction on how to win souls for the devil and how to fight against the enemy, capital E, enemy, who for them is God. So it's basically this book about the battle for human souls written from the point of view of uh, demons or devils that, that work tirelessly to try to steal uh, human souls away from God. Um, so that's the, that's the premise of the book, and it's literally just a series of letters. And through, through the series of letters... Uh, Uncle Screwtape is is advising his dear nephew Wormwood about a particular soul that he's trying to win, and it it sort of goes from there. And you you, you follow the progress, you know, Wormwood's progress of whether he wins the soul or not. And I think it's you know the book's really old. the book goes back to the nineteen uh, fifties, I believe. So you know, I think I can spoil it by now, but at the end of the book, he Wormwood fails in his quest to win the soul and the soul is converted uh, to God in Christianity. And basically Screwtape tells him, you know, he's done for and he's going to, you know, be roasted in, you know, in the underworld forever. And he, he, he doesn't, he says it with a lot of glee. So, <laughs> but uh, 
throughout the course of this, first of all, it's an incredibly unique device. Um, and throughout the course of the book, he, he's just advising, you know, in the process of advising, you know, how to, uh, basically, uh, subtly manipulate a person to bring out his, his or her worst tendencies and to keep them away from things that might lead them towards God, whether it be deeper thoughts or a beautiful landscape or a beautiful book or play or whatever it is. The ultimate objective is to keep, keep the uh, patient as they call them away from anything that might draw them closer to God or set their mind working on a sort of an inevitable uh, path that would lead them to the, to basically to the gates of heaven. So it's, uh, it's this absolutely fascinating kind of deconstruction really of our natures as human beings, especially when it comes to spiritual reality. And, um, you know, I suppose you could quibble with some parts of his worldview or, you know, this binary view of heaven and hell and whatnot, but really what it's about is, is about the ways that we, uh, the very subtle ways that we either, um, can build one another up or tear one another down and the same thing to ourselves can build ourselves up or tear ourselves down. And it's a fascinating, uh, even if you, if you're not into the spiritual side, just as a psychological portrait, it's just a sort of a fascinating look at the way our minds work and the limitations of our mind, the frailties that we all have in common. And, um, it, it's, it's, I liken it to St. Augustine's confessions in some ways, because it really touches on everything from memory to time to experience to uh, beauty and truth. And it, it's just an incredible book. It touches on all of these things. And I'll, I'll just leave it at this. You know, I, one, one thing that the uncle screw tape says to his charge is something I've never forgotten my entire life since reading it. First time, I think I'll carry it with me for the rest of my life. And he says to, and this is just an example of how profound it can get, but he says to his nephew, you know, with your patient, you know, you, you can, uh, he's talking a little bit about time. He's like, you know, God, we know that the enemy exists in the present moment. So whatever you do, keep your patient out of the present moment. You can have them wallow in the past, or you can have them fret about the future. Either one of those, they're equally great for us, but you don't want them in the present moment because that's the way the enemy, that's where the enemy is. And that nugget, it's something I could think about for the rest of my life. And, and yeah. if there was only that, that I remembered out of the book, it would, would have been worth it. But, uh, I've never read it. There's very few books I've ever read fiction on that are, are that insightful into the ways that we tick. And so that's why it's always stayed with me. Yeah. Just an all, an all world concept that C.S. Lewis had like the both the moxie and the intellect to execute on in a short space. It's really impressive to me also just from a literary point of view as well as all those things you pointed out. And um, and it's very hard hitting, especially at the end with the, with the glee was the proper word you used. And, uh, the, you know, the way that the uncle sort of dispatches that not all, his protege, not only his actual actual person but also his memory he just kind of just flits him out of his <laughs> life at the end of the book and it's just a it's a it's a brilliant book it is and i i have to throw in i forgot at the in a, in a second edition i think it wasn't part of the original book but the book was a surprise hit surprise most of all to him 
um, people really, you know, uh, latched onto it. And so there was another edition that put out and he added uh, an epilogue, which is uh, Screwtape, Professor Screwtape giving a uh, commencement speech at a graduation ceremony for the graduating class of tempters. And it, it, it's so good that the epilogue alone is worth reading, but it, it just kind of gets into, you know, everything about why they do what they do and why the enemy is stupid. And I mean, it's much more profound than that, but um, that alone would be worth reading, but uh, it's such a genius idea. I mean, the book itself is so brilliant, but then to tack that on at the end and have that idea. And of course, C.S. Lewis has, you know, spent his entire career as an academic. So there are some sort of wry you know, aspects to it because of that. But it, it just, the inventiveness is just incredible. So, but of course we're running long, so we better keep going. Okay, well, uh, that, that's a great one, John. So the next book for me, uh, I first encountered in 1996. Uh, it's a short novel, it's called Marianne and Ecstasy. And it was written by a fellow named Ron Hansen, who, um, I didn't know much about at the time, but who ended up being a Roman Catholic uh, deacon or later in life and um, who went on to write a lot about themes related to Roman Catholicism, which is my faith. Um, But I didn't necessarily know that at the time uh, when I started reading this book, but I knew that this book had something to do with the Catholic themes and the Catholic character. I didn't know that Hansen had written two novels previous that were basically westerns and he had become sort of frustrated with the fact that his faith life wasn't really making its way into his fiction so he decided to, to did you want to say I something think, i forgot i just thrown in uh, what else is ron hansen i don't know if you're going to mention this but you sort of need to uh <laughs> i'm putting you on the a blank <laughs> identical twin oh yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true I actually have a lot in common with Ron Hansen, or at least three things, so Roman Catholicism, identical twin. I can't believe I forgot that. <laughs> um, fiction writing, and also he was a former army officer like I am. Oh, nice. Anyway, um, so it's interesting. Yeah. But um, so this, this is a short novel, and it concerns a young woman. It's, set, it's a historical novel. It's set in the early days of the 20th century. Uh, 1906 is when the novel opens. And it's about a young, a beautiful young woman, and her beauty is very sort of uh, fundamental to the tale, who decides she's going to enter a convent um, with, a, I believe the order is a fictional order called the Sisters of Charity. And um, the book is just about this um, captivating, young, pretty woman who's about 18 or 19. Basically, she goes into this convent, and this time, it, it's in upstate New York, and she enters in and um, even before anything begins to happen, she kind of captures the, the um, interest and sort of like the, the minds and eyes and hearts even of all of the other sisters that are in the order. She's just a little bit mysterious and compelling. And in a short ways into the book, she starts to experience uh, what's called the stigmata, which is where she um, experiences the, the physical wounds of Christ uh, uh, crucified. So she has cuts that show up out of nowhere in her palms and in her feet, and she has a cut on her side that begin to bleed. And the rest of the book, the book is laid out sort of um, looking back on events is almost like a procedural investigation of what happened. Mm into into this situation where this woman had the had the stigmata 
And the, the, the central question of the entire novel is, was this real? Did she somehow stage it? What does it mean? And, the, and that's basically the novel in a nutshell. So I read this, it was critical to mention just really quickly when I sort of encountered it. So I was in the army, like I mentioned, from 1992 to 1996. I was just getting out of the army. Um, it was the fall of 1996. I went to my parents' home. I was living alone with my mother and father and starting to think about what I wanted to do and be. I was very interested in going, in going to graduate school and writing fiction. And I encountered this book. I think I had had it on the shelf. And book blew my mind. It's probably I would probably list it as my favorite novel if I had wow. to list one. And the reason why it did is because it's really two reasons. I've thought about this book so much over the years, um, and I want to keep it short. But there's, there's really two reasons. Number one is that it was a book that dealt with themes that I personally was interested in, but pro, but even still like prof profound questions around existence faith encounters with the divine and it did so in such a way that asked the questions but did not provide easy answers so there's no firm resolution at the end of this book it's left to the reader to decide kind of what happened mm -hmm. was it real was it not real and i really admired that the writer had the guts to take on issues that he was interested in faith issues but did not try to preach a point of view or Force one answer or another on the reader. Great point. Um, to me, that was the kind of, that was the kind of fiction that I was interested in trying to develop to write. Fiction that probed certain themes but didn't tell you how to be. So that's number one. And number two was the gorgeous beauty of the way that Ron Hansen constructed the book, the language of the novel itself. Like I said, it was short. Um, it has a bunch of very very small chapters broken into very small paragraphs. Some paragraphs are even one sentence. They're separated by like white spaces on the page and on most of the pages of the book. Years later, when I admired the book so much, Ron Hansen was putting out another book and I was lucky enough, I was attending graduate school in New York. I went to see him do a reading and he did a Q&A and somebody asked him about the way that that novel was constructed with the white spaces and he said something I never forgot, which was that he structured that way very much deliberately so that the reader of his novel could insert themselves into the white spaces between the lines. And I thought that was brilliant. And it was just, for me, it's like kind of the ultimate example of something I could probably not achieve, but what I wanted to achieve if I took on fiction writing in the future. So I'll leave it there. Wow. Yeah, that's that's an incredible book. Again, I think all these books that we're going to bring up, we've we've both read at least once. Um, I, I don't know if I might have read that book twice, but it's an amazing novel. And uh, I really love what you said, especially about how he was able to probe some of those really deep and profound questions, but not tell you, not tell the reader how to answer them. So that that's awesome. I, mm. I love that. So my second choice um, is kind of a cheat. And it's one that, uh, you know, we could almost swap some of these choices because I know that we talked about what we were going to pick and everyone, you know, we both, uh, uh, you know, are very familiar with what the other chose, but uh, I'm going to cheat and go with all of the short fiction of Flannery O'Connor. Um, and I really could expand that out to the sheet. Flannery O'Connor, as people may know, uh, Southern writer, she's from Georgia. She, she's in the middle of the 20th century. Um, 
very famous for her short stories and all. She only wrote two novels. She died at the age of 39 from complications due to lupus. So she didn't live and write that long. Uh, but her writing has kind of resonated ever since it came out, basically. Um, and uh, she only has she only had two collections in her lifetime of short stories. And there was, a, I think, a small smattering of, of other stories that existed that maybe weren't published or were in unfinished form or whatever. Um, so I'm just going to I could expand it and say all the fiction of Larry Connor because it's so powerful. But I guess I'll just focus on the short stories, but I'm not going to unpack any particular stories. There's so much out there about Flannery O'Connor and she's been written about and spoken about so many times. Um, and, you know, it's probably no accident. You mentioned Catholicism. That That's also my faith. That's a faith of our family. I did stray away from it for a while uh, as a young man for about 12 years, but I made myself I made my way back to it. And so uh, Flannery O'Connor writes, uh, she was a Catholic herself. And so that informs her writing. It's not necessarily uh, directly, but sort of indirectly. But really, I, you know, I, I mentioned her. She's, I, I put her on this list because her short stories are probably more powerful than any I've ever read. And I've read a lot of short stories. We've talked about the short story many times. We will probably cover it, you know, as a genre on this show more than once. Um, yeah, we're both. Yeah. I know you write them, and we're both admirers of the form and what you can do, and what some writers are able to do in a short space. But Flannery O'Connor, her stories are unlike any that I've ever read before. Uh, I think there are many people who have tried to write like her, um, but can't quite do it in the same way she does. It's a whole other discussion. You know, why was she able to write so powerfully uh, as a young woman who spent most of her life in the South, living with her mom, unmarried? In terms of her life's experience on paper, wasn't that broad, but the power that she was able to bring into her writing and the sort of the spiritual depth of it uh, is very mysterious. And you could talk all day long about why why that is, you know, why her fiction is so powerful. Um, to me, it's just a it, it, it's the uh, unusual combination of of humor and also spiritual depth. I would say that almost every one of her stories brings. She writes about the South. She often writes about, you know, what she would have called hillbillies or, or uh, usually uh, the South is, you know, in her part of Georgia is kind of like the main, you know, the Bible Belt. So she's often writing about uh, Protestants living in the South. And uh, she, she mined that for a lot of humor. But I really admire the way that she, you know, she's writing from a Catholic perspective in the deep South, which is overwhelmingly Protestant and fundamentalist and she was able to find a lot of humor in that but you also get the sense that she's not she takes the underlying faith that people in her region had seriously and that's that's really one of the things i admire most about her fiction is she's able to weave three things together one is one is just backwards humor and often they're hilarious and we've talked about that many times the other is what she would have called it grotesque, but there's often these moments of very powerful violence or shocking violence or uh, human cruelty or evil, really, that she weaves into her stories that kind of pop up when you least expect it. And they really, you know, hit you in the gut. The most famous example is her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, in which uh, uh, an escaped convict ends up murdering an entire family and he saves the grandmother for last and he shoots her. And the way this kind of plays out, it's very, it's still shocking to this day. Um, 
And that's the second element. And the third element is uh, what I would call, you know, uh, taking, again, taking spiritual questions seriously. Um, there are spiritual elements that weave in and out of our stories uh, that are never looked down upon or, or played for laughs. They're, they're taken profoundly seriously. And the most unexpected characters can have these moments of real revelation and moments of grace. And in almost every story, this happens. And nobody sets the table for that, like Flannery O'Connor. She, you know, her, her stories, again, they're often like very funny and kind of satirical. And there's lots of funny dialogue and then something terrible will happen. But then there'll be this moment that cuts through all of that, that is a spirit, profoundly spiritual moment or a moment of revelation of some kind, usually involving one of the characters. And it just cuts you to the quick. And it just kind of like, like a shaft of light, you know, cutting through fog. It just gets to you as a reader and it leaves you with this it's hard to describe but it leaves you with this sort of profound sense of uh wonderment and kind of uh a little bit like what just happened you know wondering what just happened did did you know quote unquote did god break through there for a moment i uh, know there's one called the enduring chill where there's a man who's passing away uh, in a sick bed and at, at the, in the last moments of his life he looks up and he sees a stain on the on the ceiling and it looks like the dove of the Holy Ghost descending upon him. And the way she writes it, she kind of leaves it there. And you have this image of the Holy Ghost descending, you know, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove that just kind of came out of nowhere. And the rest of the story is pretty bleak, as I remember. But it just happened. And you're oh. just kind of left, you know, almost like breathing heavier and just wondering, what what did we just experience? And she was able to do that. She's able to do that in almost every one of her stories. And uh, it's a it's a quality I've never really encountered with anyone else not to that degree in the way that these stories sort of break through into a realm that feels more spiritual basically and it really leaves it really kind of shakes you and leaves you uh leaves you thinking or at least it did to me and i've never quite seen that i've never seen that quality in another person's writing and that's why she makes a list because because of that effect that her fiction has yeah uh, I I would I I'm sort of hesitant to even add to it because you did such a great. I thought to myself with uh, much trepidation, John, when you brought this up as one of your topics, how's he gonna treat that for like a few minutes? Uh, but you did a really nice job describing it's tough. What's so unique? Yeah, it really is. It's a whole topic unto itself. You know, to add to that, and you mentioned it, but like she had this incredible like ability to see things clearly. You know. And she, and she, for, especially for somebody who had didn't have the life experience that a lot of other people who were writing fiction at the time, or even Catholic or spiritual fiction at the time, she had this unique combination of like this incredible intellect, then sort of like a deeply mysterious and almost unfathomable, unfathomable willingness to sort of go deep in the faith in her own mind, and then she just kind of was clear sighted. She saw things sort of the way they were and wrote about them the way they were. There's that famous um, exchange with, the, I think somebody asked her a question, you know, like why she writes about so many freaks. And she answered, I think it was a student, and she answered is because I still have the capacity to recognize one, you know. <laughs> and that just says, that says something about her, the way she could just see things clearly kind of for what they were. But uh, she did a great job synopsizing her uh Short fiction, you know, it's a it's a world unto itself for sure. Yeah, and I I should say that you I think you may have 
dipped into her work first. So, yeah, I'm kind of following you in that regard. We've been talking about her for for, for decades, but you know, uh, who knows? We may talk about her more before this podcast is over. Yeah. Well, um, can I go ahead? Yeah, please. Okay, so let's just, uh, we're, we're right about at an hour, but let's just keep going. Trust that we're going to carry our readers with us. Yep. Or our listeners with us. Uh, <laughs> Freudian slip there. So my, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, great discussion so far. So my, my third book is another one we could talk about at great length. Um, this one I really debated because there's a couple other books I also might have cho- chosen. Moby Dick is one of them. The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck is one of them. But I sort of eschewed those books in favor of this next one because it's, uh, first of all, the amount of times I've read it. I've read it three times. And also sort of, I guess, a little bit more recently or more forward in the timeline, this book has really profoundly impacted my outlook on fiction and fiction writing and fiction in general. And the book is called Blood Meridian, um, and it was written by somebody named Cormac mm-hmm. McCarthy, who's I think was one of the great, still living, I think he's in his mid-80s now, American novelists. And uh, I should just say right off the, right off the bat, Blood Meridian is the most, is the bloodiest book I've ever read by far, <laughs> and it's the most violent book I've ever read by far. Um, so if you don't, you know, if you don't like blood and are violent books you know this book is not for you uh, john you and i both read it multiple times we know what the book is but just a brief synopsis it's basically and it was pu- it was published in the mid 1980s it was kind of like you know received sort of in lukewarm manner I actually went back and looked at some of this um from a critical perspective and and you could see why i read the kirkus review from 1985 which is kirkus does like brief reviews in a paragraph and paragraph and they kind of panned it basically for what John Lovell would call purple prose, you know, like, uh, I'll get into that a little bit, but for like it, the book, one of the characteristics of the book is that it sort of strives very hard throughout the book for this kind of a uh, biblical type of tone to the language that it uses yeah. <laughs> um, with some very obscure vocabulary. But just quickly, plot-wise, it's a it's a, a novel. It feels like a way big, bigger book than it actually is. It's like three hundred and some pages in reality. Yeah. Um, but it's a very dense book. It's about this young drifter, a, a child, really only fifteen or sixteen, from Tennessee, who kind of like is orphaned and sort of. Uh, when we first encounter him, he's literally just kind of wandering around in the middle of the 19th century. So it's set right around the middle of that century, 1849, 1850. Wanders towards the West and gets taken up with this gang of uh, former American troops who have turned into kind of like a cattle raiding, thieving kind of group that actually exists in history called the Glanton Gang. And they go around and they kind of steal cattle and get into skirmishes with uh, American Indians. And so he falls in with this group and he and with its leader, whose name is Glanton. And Glanton has this sidekick, I guess, or this uh, companion in leading this band of thieves and marauders. And it's this absolutely unforgettable literary character that McCarthy created, uh, whose name is The Judge capital T, capital J. <laughs> and he's this very large, albino, hairless, 
know, demon or man. <laughs> and yeah, and he rides with this gang, and he uh, sort of takes this kid under his wing, I guess, and uh, frequently um, spouts off sort of like you know a twisted philosophy. And the the whole novel is basically a, a violent journey with this gang, just kind of ripping across the West sort of a metaphor of American westward expansion and the slaughter of American Indians. And it's basically this gang running around the West and committing heinous acts of violence. And um, along the way, there's these exchanges between this kid who eventually becomes the man, not the kid, because he gets older and time passes. And the judge and some other characters, there's one that's like a sort of a disgraced priest and other characters that sort of weave in and out. Um, but most of it is just about this marauding gang committing these ridiculous acts of violence and these, you know, long passages of sort of like twisted philosophy from the judge and other people that are around the judge. And uh, I'll just give you a short example. I wrote down one quote from the judge. It's the type of thing that he would say in the novel. At one point, he tells the kid, if God meant to intrude in the degeneracy of mankind... Would he not have done so by now? So it's like lines like that. Um, and it just goes on and on for pages. And it's a, a tough read because it's so bloody and the language is really demanding. Um, it will tax you as like a reader and then you'll be <laughs> looking for your, um, for your dictionary and your thesaurus. But it brings up all kinds of very profound questions, not just about America and its destiny and you know, what we did to the Indians and to women and to people who look differently than us, but also just questions really about what we're doing here and why we have such this great capacity for such terrible acts of violence and what it all means. And then on top of that, I'll just mention quickly, it ends up with this very brief epilogue at the end of the novel that's like a paragraph long and it's one of the most mysterious and profound scenes in any novel I have ever read I have no idea what it means I, I wouldn't want to give away too much but it just has it's basically features this guy who's got these two pegs and he's dragging himself over a plateau of the desert and he's creating a hole for each peg as he goes forward so he advances one peg and digs a hole and then advances his body forward and advances a peg and dig a, digs another hole and basically leaves you there <laughs> and you're supposed to, and you're supposed to figure out sort of what that means and maybe i shouldn't have said that maybe that's too much of a spoiler but the book has been around since 1985 yeah. so it's an incredibly powerful book that really really affected me and i could see myself reading several more times really yeah agreed pretty much across the board and it's interesting because my third selection is a kind of a perfect pairing with that because the two books have been compared many times. And to compare any book to the book I'm about to bring up is really something <laughs> because uh, there's never been an American novel, in my opinion, quite like Moby Dick. And you mm. brought it up. You mentioned it briefly before, but really they're, they are similar in kind of what they take on in their scope. And um, they even have a central figure who's this basically, you know, raving lunatic madman uh, who seems to be bent on some kind of mission that, you know, is really 
difficult to figure out, uh, but it, it seems like he's up to no good. Of course, I'm talking about Captain Ahab, and in your case, it's the judge. Um, but these are, uh, in lieu of commenting directly on Blood Meridian, maybe I'll just talk about Moby Dick. And you know, they're they're sort of similar books in some ways, and that they're epic in scope. And that is, you know, Moby Dick is the third selection in my list um, for a lot of the similar reasons, really, for what you just brought up about Blood Meridian. Uh, there, there, in my opinion, there is no novel like Moby Dick anywhere outside of America. You know, and one thing I realize just in our discussion here today, one thing that kind of binds my three choices together is they're all for each one of them. I think, how did this person, this writer, how were they able to, and it's an unanswerable question, how were they with their kind of a upbringing and provenance and their, you know, uh, set of circumstances that they were writing from, all of which are kind of humble in their own way, how were they able to come up with works that were so profoundly insightful about who we, like you just said, who we are and what we're doing here? And uh, that's something that, that, sort of theme unites all three of my choices from the stories of Flannery O'Connor to Screwtape Letters and now Moby Dick. Moby Dick, as everybody knows, most people have heard of Moby Dick, especially if you're an American. You know it's about a crazed captain who's going after a white whale. It's referenced all the time, even to this day, in uh, you know popular discourse and in the news, wouldn't you say? Jude, I mean, you, you hear, I, I know uh, George Bush was famously like into Ahab, I think, when he was going after Saddam Hussein. I mean, it just comes up all the time, you know. It's- yeah, it's ubiquitous in our culture. It's like, you know, in, in, inextricable from like our language. Lexicon. Yeah, it's like almost like an American scripture in a weird way. And, um, and it, mm-hmm. there are similarities, too, with Blood Meridian because in both cases – yeah, I haven't really unpacked this before, but you know, we could, you could do a whole podcast on Blood Meridian and Moby Dick, of course. But in both cases, they seem to be about this kind of American project that has to do with expansion and domination in a way and capitalism in a way. You know, we're going to go far and wide and, you know, spread our arms as far as they'll go and take everything that we can capture that's ours and, and claim it as ours. And so, with Blood Meridian, it's the West, and the subtitle of the book you didn't mention, but it's it, Blood Meridian or or the Evening Redness in the West, I think, which is a very evocative yeah. image. You know, wherever you are in the West, you look west and you see kind of the sun going down over this incredible vista, and it just kind of indicates that it goes on forever. Well, same thing with Moby Dick, and I just finished reading a book I about whaling and in part about the whaling industry and about and it for america that had a lot to do with uh you know just going farther and farther and farther to kind of gain more resources and thereby dominate the world you know and that's why the british empire got into it as well as their empire was expanding they realized uh after we did they realized hey you know uh we get into this whaling game you know we could control uh, a lot of the world economy because everybody wants whale oil for their lamps and whatnot that's a whole that's a whole other thing but both books are about that kind of American tendency to kind of spread our arms as far as they'll go and claim whatever's ours. We even went to the moon, right? And put our flag in it. So. Yeah, great points. And yeah. so there's a lot of similarities between Moby Dick and Blood Meridian, but uh, 
you know, they're both kind of these sort of epic sort of crazy quests. Uh, in, in Moby Dick, it's a specific reason. Um, Ahab is going after the white whale because the white whale, among other things, has taken his leg. He's got a peg leg. Um, and he basically wants revenge. But within the scope of this revenge story or within McCarthy's, you know, Western story, um, the themes are grandiose enough that, that it, you know, expands out to be, uh, you know, cover a multitude of philosophical questions. Moby Dick is such a book. Now, I'm obviously... If you could, if you can't tell already, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a philosophical bent. I said it before, you know, I enjoy grappling with tricky, difficult, big, quote unquote, big questions. And Moby Dick is, you know, one of the reasons I admire it so much is there's almost nothing that it doesn't cover in, in terms of, uh, you know, our entire experience. So, uh, I mean, famously, it's got an entire chapter about the whiteness of the whale and what does, why is white so frightening and what does whiteness even mean? I mean, it's very wide ranging, very philosophical. Uh, and it just, it just seems to be a novel that it, within this simple story of revenge and adventure on the high seas, it kind of covers everything and it really gets into what makes us tick. And on top of all that, if you can get through the, you know, you're either going to enjoy the philosophy and enjoy the language or you're not, like you said with Blood Meridian. If you don't get into, you know, uh, wordiness or if you don't get into if plumbing deep spiritual or philosophical questions kind of tires you out, these books probably aren't for you. You know, maybe you need to read Dashiell Hammett or maybe you need to read Hemingway or, or something that's, you know, gets more to the point quicker. But if you enjoy that kind of rambling and the, and the richness of the language, or if you're somebody who enjoys Shakespeare, for example, because of the language, you know, these books may be more art for you. But what I admire about Melville is he's got this incredibly philosophical, poetic, dense book that also kind of in the, in the last 50 pages becomes this incredibly thrilling adventure yarn. And it has like basically a, a slam bang ending. I mean, it has like this unbelievable ending with some images that will stay with you for the rest of your life and right up to the final really yeah right up to the final page right uh, because and most people know like you know the person narrating the book is the only one who survives the, the whale destroys the ship and all hands go down except for ishmael and he literally the only reason he survives is because this this coffin comes shooting up out of the water and he grabs a hold of it and he survives i mean it's just it's like a thriller on top of all this other stuff so <laughs> i yeah, and I, John, John, it's really, really quick. I'm gonna make my joke. I, I joke about Moby Dick because I talk about it a lot too. That it, it writes like an 840 page check that it cashes in the last like 40 pages, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. like, like it, it writes this huge check and it cashes it in the, the final chapter. Oh, opinion. that's so true. And there's one image we've talked about before. I'm not gonna say it here in case anybody decides that they want to take it on, but there's one image towards the end of the book. There's this prophet. <laughs> right who keeps making these incredible prophecies and 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 he basically says well you're you know you're not going to see me for a while but then you're going to see me again and he cashes that check too in this way that's just absolutely unbelievable you know it's like it's right up there with anything shamalon or shamalama ding dong you know ever uh, whatever whatever twists he ever put into a movie it's right up there with any of those it's it's fantastic but uh yeah, yeah. Anyway, we could go on forever. I, I'll, I'll leave it there. But Moby Dick is 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 absolutely a towering book. Uh, there's nothing like it ever written anywhere, in my opinion. If you 
if you have ever thought about taking on an ambitious American novel and, you know, you kind of been intimidated by the length, I would really encourage you to give it a shot. Yes, the language is ornate. Yes, it's a long book. But I would say by the time you get to that book, if you if you were able to say, you know, well, I've read I've read books like that before, I would I would call you a liar. I'm sorry, because <laughs> that is it is <laughs> one of the most unique reading experiences you could possibly have as a human being. I'm just going to say that flat out. So that's why I love it so much. Anyway. Yeah, great one, John. <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of brings us finally to the end of the, the meat of the show. And we'll just wrap it up here quickly. Why don't we just, you know, really quickly, what do you, what do you got coming up next? What are you going to be reading next? Well, I, so I'm on my book, big book project. And uh, but I've decided, uh, you know, when I started it, that I'm going to read sort of some smaller books in between. So I'll just say my next read after the stand, it's going to be one of my choices for our next episode that I'm going to revisit before we hopefully before we do record the next episode, uh, a nonfiction book that's not very long. So I'll just leave it at that. And then after that, uh, interestingly enough, I had already decided prior to this episode that I would reread. Moby Dick, uh, <laughs> nice. for for many many reasons, but one of them is I first read I read it the first time in 2000, and then I reread it. I actually wrote a book about Melville and Moby Dick in 2011, but I was doing the research for that in 2010, so I reread it in 2010, and we're now sitting here in a global pandemic in 2020, so it's ideal, and I'm going to read it again. Yeah, that's awesome. I forgot you had mentioned that completely. So it's it's cool that that comes up at the end of this show here. And I don't expect you to do it, but I am going to do it. Um, we were just talking about Melville. If you have any interest in Herman Melville at all and Moby Dick, um, my brother here wrote a fascinating book about Herman Melville, about all of his work. If you don't know, if the only thing you know about Herman Melville is Moby Dick, and I think you'd really, if you're a reader, you'd really discover a lot of incredible information you didn't know about his other work and about his life. If you read my brother's book, which is called Forever Voyaging. Um, what's the subtitle, dude? Forever Voyaging, One Writer's Journey. Uh, I believe it's One Writer's Apprenticeship with her, Herman right, Melville. Right, right. So I, I just bring that up. You could, you could check it out on Amazon. It's not that expensive. But I've, I've read some books about Melville. This is a really interesting one. It taught me a lot about Melville I didn't know. Go check it out if you're inclined. Anyway, um, yeah, you. what I'm going to read, and I wouldn't say that if I, I really genuinely like that book a lot. I think it's very interesting, and I think it, uh, it's kind of a unique angle. I've never seen on Melville before, so there you go. My next book is going to be, as soon as I finish the overstory, which is going to be very soon, um, reading a novel from Japan by a guy named Akira Yoshimura. The novel is called Shipwrecks. It was the first one work of his to be translated into English. I read that on the jacket flap. That's kind of all I know about it. Um, I think it has some supernatural sort of elements to it. I know you read it, Jude. And it takes place in kind of the Middle Ages in Japan in a seaside village uh, in which a lot of ships tend to founder and they find parts of ships that wash up onto the shore. And that's about all I know, but it sounds like kind of a haunting book not that long and I'm, I'm looking forward to I often try to read we'll get into this as the podcast goes along but we, we both try to read from different parts of the world um, I'm making sort of a concerted effort to do that right now actually is just to read from different areas of the world 
So this is going to be from the Far East. So I'm looking forward to shipwrecks. And that's what I'll be talking yeah, about. Say that again. I said fascinating choice. Yeah. Yeah, I know you read it, and maybe someday we'll we'll kick dig into that. But with that, I think I'm going to cut this off for now. Uh, we have gone an hour and 20 minutes. I, I don't know that every episode is going to be this long, but these first couple, I think, are going to be kind of set the table for everything that's going to follow. So for anybody who decided to stay, stay with us this long, we appreciate you listening. And um, we'll be back sometime soon with, this, with the second part of this, which is going to dig into some nonfiction books. But I've enjoyed it. I hope you have, uh, Jude, and I hope our listeners have as well. Yeah, thank you everyone for listening who has listened and go get go get reading. All right. Jude, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Okay, thank you. See you later. All right.